You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Throughout her long history, Christ's Church has been united and divided by words. For that reason, our creeds and confessions often have mixed reputations. They are pure apostolic tradition. They are ephemera of a political moment. They are hammers against heretics. They are manifestos for schism. These reputations reflect the complex relationship that our joint professions have, both to the Church's ancient roots and her present moments. To help us navigate that complex relationship, Donald Fairbairn and Ryan Reeves trace the story of creeds and confessions through church history, situating these documents back into the contentious moments that gave them rise. I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. Donald Fairbairn, Robert E. Cooley Professor of Early Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and co-author of The Story of Creeds and Confessions, Tracing the Development of the Christian Faith, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Fairbairn. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I've read a number of books on church histories, uh, surveys and focus studies, and this one is a bit different from any I've read before. What goal or project uh, sets this book apart in that way? What led you and your co-author to see the need that this book meets? Well, I think the main thing that we wanted to do that was quite different has to do with listening to what the choir is singing rather than listening to the soloist. Church history books often focus on what you might call great men. They focus on the major figures of history, and they give a lot of detail about their lives, and they sort of stitch the stories of the major figures together, and they tell church history that way. And I like to think of that, especially when you're looking at theological history, I like to think of that as listening to the soloist. But what we're trying to do in a book like this is not to hear the soloist, but to hear the choir, to hear the voice of the whole church. And we can hear that very well through the creeds and then later the confessions. And so this is a a pretty significant difference of emphasis. We're trying to tell the story of Christian history and especially the story of the history of Christian theology by listening to the repeated themes that show up in the creeds and the confessions, rather than the more dramatic voices of the great theologians themselves. I really like that metaphor. Uh, that that illuminates uh, a lot of what I'm saying here. Make, I should mention that it isn't my metaphor. It comes from Yaroslav Pelikan, and anybody who knows historical theology well will know the significance of that name. Oh, yeah. The subtitle of the book is Tracing the Development of the Christian Faith, Uh, and there are many narratives of the development of doctrine, uh, to use Cardinal Newman's phrase. So how does this book characterize the historical development of creedal and confessional theology in ways that differ with um, other narratives of change? I think the word development needs to be seen 
as kind of a middle ground between the idea that there isn't any change and the idea that change is very abrupt, very dramatic, and perhaps artificial. So I think the best way for me to explain what we mean by development is to talk about those two extremes between which we're situating the word development. A lot of Protestants have this idea that doctrine is this set of eternal propositions that sort of hang out there ahistorically. And in fact, in Dr. Reeves' half of the book, I read the first half and Dr. Reeves read the second half. And in his half of the book, one of the things that he does is to talk about the way that idea of doctrine as an eternal, unchanging set of truths emerges in early Protestantism. That idea is still very much with Protestants today, and we tend to focus on doctrine in abstraction from the history that led to the articulation of that doctrine. In fact, I fear that sometimes we focus on doctrines more than we focus on God. The doctrines are not meant to be ends in themselves. The doctrines are meant to point to God who is the object of our faith. But sometimes we treat the, sometimes we treat the doctrines as if they were the object of our faith themselves. So in contrast to that common notion that theology doesn't develop, that you nail the right answers and then they remain eternally the same, this book emphasizes that the articulation of theology, the articulation of doctrine, is always affected by circumstances. And so we need to rethink and rearticulate doctrine as we face new circumstances. So one of the reasons we need to rethink and rearticulate Christian doctrine is that we may not have gotten everything right previously. There's room for continued reflection on Scripture, for continued tweaking of what we believe, or in some cases, radically overhauling what we believe if we become convinced that the Bible teaches something else. But another reason for that need is that language changes, culture changes, situations change. And so we need to be able to restate the great truths of the Christian faith in new languages, for new cultures, for new situations. And that requires something which is not static. And so the word development, we think, is a good word to get at what we're trying to do and what the church has been trying to do there. So that's development in opposition to this idea of a static, eternal set of propositions that one might call doctrine. But on the other hand, we also need to oppose the idea of development to the idea of radical or even arbitrary change. In a lot of skeptical circles, non-Christian circles, agnostic circles, or perhaps even in liberal Christian circles, it's commonly thought that there was no consensus at all about the great truths of the Christian faith. Many scholars today are fond of speaking of Christianities in the plural, not of a single Christianity with different expressions, but entirely different faiths that went by the name Christianity, but that were utterly dissimilar to each other. And they will often say that the only thing that led to the formation of any consensus at all was imperial pressure. 
And so the victors in the political power struggle demanded a certain kind of doctrine, and that's what came to be called orthodoxy. That's very problematic because it severely underplays the amount of consensus that was actually present in the early church. And so in between this idea of no consensus at all and this idea of no change at all, I think we can trace a development led by the Holy Spirit in which the church articulates and re-articulates the truth of the faith in response to different situations. And so that's the kind of model of development that Dr. Reeves and I were using in the book and that we were trying to get across. I like that that positioning of it between poles. In fact, I'd like to follow up with a couple of questions, which at least Mm -hmm. as I was reading, uh, seem to get at the two poles. Um, because one of the tensions early in the book is the need to preserve both uh, the important role for creeds and also the unique status of the canonical scriptures, which to me seems to be closer to that that unmoving pole on one side. So what is what balance do you see between the priority of the status of scripture, but also the... Uh, the role, the need for the church to be able to articulate something in creed form. Um, wh- how do you see the balance between those priorities in what y'all call the creedal impulse? Very good question. Let me begin trying to answer it by telling you something that I often say to my students. I tell my students, number one, there's only one book in the world that you really need to understand, and that's the Bible. Similarly, I tell my students at the end of the day, not even the Nicene Creed ultimately matters. What matters is Scripture. Now, I say that as a person who loves the Nicene Creed, who loves the creeds, who loves the writings of the early church, who loves historical theology. But I want my students to recognize Scripture isn't a category all by itself. Everything that human beings have said about Scripture goes in a different category or maybe several different categories, but all of that goes underneath Scripture and is different from Scripture. Many Protestants mistakenly think that the early church didn't have a clear doctrine of Scripture. They may think that the idea of sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, began with the Reformation. And that really isn't true, because the writers of the early church had a very, very deep reverence for the Bible. It was relatively rare for them to articulate a doctrine of Scripture, such as we do in Protestantism. But when they did articulate a doctrine of Scripture explicitly, they always, always put Scripture in a category by itself and put everything else in a lower set of categories beneath Scripture. But that's not the most remarkable thing to me about the way the early church looked at the Bible. More remarkably than that is the fact that they demonstrated their commitment to the unique authority of Scripture by the way they handled it. They read it. They learned it. They memorized it. 
they held it in their heart, as did the Jews in the time of the Old Testament, in a period when it was not particularly easy to get copies of the biblical books in front of you. They dealt with that difficulty by committing the whole thing to memory so that they could always have it in their mind. And one of the very striking things about the great centuries of theological ferment in the early church is that whenever there was a controversy, everybody went back to the Bible. In a time when there was no controversy, you might say, well, Athanasius says so-and-so, and that would be good enough for anybody. But when you have a major theological controversy, you don't quote Athanasius. You start going back to the Bible. And both sides or all sides of the controversy would be intensely focused on the biblical passages and what those passages actually mean. So the way I like to put it is that the early church demonstrated its commitment to the uniqueness of the Bible by the way they handled the Bible, not by what they said about the Bible. Of course, we are much more intentional about articulating a doctrine of Scripture and Protestantism today, but I'd like to see us equally as as uh, focused on the text of the Bible and the way we handle the Bible as the early churches. One of the things that I observed, uh, y'all, uh, the, the the two of you emphasized in the book again and again, is uh, the ways in which the uh, the thinkers who were formulating the languages uh, first of creeds and then later of confessions, the ways that they saw what they were doing as finding. Um, language that was not necessarily strictly from Scripture as a way mm-hmm. of securing the uh, the understanding of Scripture. Um, and, and frequently uh, in response to uh, opponents in the controversy who would have preferred that no language other than what was explicitly used in Scripture uh, uh, should be used. Can, can you speak to right. that? How, why would it be? Why would it, in some way, be more respectful or more faithful to the Bible to say something in language that's not explicitly in the Bible? Okay, another excellent question, and I think the best way to answer it is to go to the most famous and the most controversial use of an extra-biblical word in Christian history, and that is the use of the word homoousios, or, or consubstantial, in the Creed of Nicaea in 325, and then in the Nicene Creed in 381. And in the 350s, Athanasius, who was present at the Council of Nicaea in 325, writes about that council because he is taking a lot of heat related to exactly the question that you've just asked. Why didn't you stick to biblical words and phrases? Why did you use such a problematic, seemingly philosophical word as homoousios or consubstantial in the creed? And part of the answer is, well, we did stick to biblical phrases as much as we could, and we shouldn't overemphasize 
or overstate the amount of philosophical language in the creeds and the confessions. Most of the language is words and phrases from the Bible. But relating to that very famous and controversial non-biblical word, Athanasius says, at the council, we were trying out various different biblical expressions. And the Arians kept winking and nodding to each other as we tried out each one, because they were imagining how they would be able to twist that expression to their own purposes. We needed to come up with a word that was unambiguous enough that they couldn't use it. They couldn't reinterpret it in their own way. So the quest for the most precise language to ward off a particular mistake, a particular heresy in this case, often leaves you to use language that is not directly in the Bible because the Bible is not directly facing that particular mistake. Significantly, though, Athanasius, in the same passage that I've just been alluding to here, he says that what we were trying to do through the word homoousios was to gather the sense of the Scriptures. They were trying to come up with a word that would collect all that the Bible had said in many different passages and encapsulate it in a single word that they hoped would unambiguously express the truth that the Son is fully equal to the Father. Now, the word turned out not to be unambiguous. It took about 50 years for everybody to come to agreement about what that word meant. But what they were trying to do was to gather the sense of the Scriptures. And I think it's ironic, but it's also important to recognize that sometimes, in order to gather the sense of the Scriptures, you need to use words and phrases that are not directly in the Bible. That passage, that passage where Athanasius describes the uh, the winking Arians is, uh, I feel like that's such an important story in church history as an explanation for why clear theological language is so important. Because without that language, how would you how would you expose um, you know how would you expose the Arian? How would you know that he was there if he was attempting to conceal <laughs> mm-hmm. right that teaching? Um, uh, so so using that language that the Arian cannot uh, misuse uh, becomes important. Yes. It is important, and and as you know, since you've read the book, that's why I quote that entire passage in the book. Yeah. The other side, the other pole that you talked about between no change at all and then change only for a kind of uh, uh, outside force um, is that there were political powers that were uh, there, often providing the at least the historical impulse towards creedal and confessional development. So what role do the political forces and the political personalities play in your narrative development? How can you do justice to that real historical character of their role without reducing doctrinal development to a political power play? Yes, another excellent question. And I think I need to begin by pointing out 
that one of the misconceptions that many Protestants have is that any time there's involvement between the church and the political sphere, that's a bad thing. We need to realize that involvement between the church and the political sphere, between the church and the government, between the church and kings and emperors and governmental officials is inevitable. If the church is going to live in the society, if the church is going to live in the world, which we are called to do, then it's inevitable that there's going to be that kind of interaction. It's a mistake, I think, for us to paint a picture of, on one hand, either complete purity and uninvolvement from the world, and on the other hand, a complete selling out to the world. The relation between the church and the surrounding societies has always been complicated. It is different in different times and different places, but that kind of relation is always there, and we don't do any, ourselves any favors by pretending that it can be avoided or by pretending that it would necessarily be a good thing to avoid it. So to think with, with that as kind of a prelude, to think about the relation between the political sphere and the development of doctrine, especially during the ecumenical councils, especially leading to the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition, the great statements of our faith that were put forward in the patristic period. The way I like to put it in general is that the political authorities wanted uniformity. If you're the Roman emperor or Byzantine emperor, what you want is for your entire empire to be religiously united. And so as a visible expression of uniformity, you want a document that everybody can rally behind. You want a creed or later a confession that everybody can rally behind, that everybody can support. But what we tend to forget is that in almost all cases, the emperors were pretty amateurish theologians. You know, they, they were young in their faith. They were not usually the greatest intellects. There were one or two exceptions, but not usually. And they often didn't understand what the doctrinal issues were even about. So they were putting pressure on the church to come up with a united statement. But they were putting much less pressure on the church to try to influence what the statement would actually be. So I like to say that the, the church's consensus emerges during these councils at the prodding of the emperor. But the emperor is not determinative in what the consensus is actually going to be or how it will be expressed. Most of the time, the emperors leave the actual expression of doctrine up to the pros, up to the theologians themselves. And I think it's also worth pointing out that there are significant examples where the theological prose didn't go along with what the emperor wanted. And those examples remind us that they were not simply imperial puppets doing whatever the emperor told them to. They were sensitive to what the emperor wanted, but they were not going to compromise their faith for the sake of affirming a document that the emperor had come up with. I think the best example of this comes at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Emperor Marcion, 
made it perfectly clear that he wanted a new creed to replace the Nicene Creed. But that is not what the bishops at Chalcedon gave him. Instead, they gave him a definition, the Chalcedonian definition. Now, sometimes we think of a single paragraph of that document as being the Chalcedonian definition. And sometimes we even call that that paragraph the Chalcedonian Creed. There are certain groups of Protestants, for example, that speak of the Chalcedonian Creed. But it wasn't a creed, and the famous paragraph is not the whole definition. The Chalcedonian definition is three pages long. It includes a complete quotation of the Creed of Nicaea from 325, a complete quotation of the Nicene Creed, what we call the Nicene Creed today, from 381, some more explanatory matter, and then an explanatory paragraph to help understand the Nicene Creed. So Marcion asked for a new creed. They didn't give it to him. They gave him something else designed to emphasize the truth of the Nicene Creed and to apply it to the new questions that they were asking. So there are examples like that that remind us that the bishops were not merely imperial puppets. The emperor had a lot of influence on what happened. The emperors called the ecumenical councils. The emperors sometimes pushed in one direction or another, but they were not ultimately determinative. It was the theologians representing the mind of the church who actually determined what got into the documents themselves. Yeah. I think if the that common reading of uh, the ecumenical councils and those moves toward creed as just political moves on the part of an emperor. Um, the, the the career of Athanasius would have been very different if Constantine and his successors were were actually on board with the conclusions of Nicaea. <laughs> yes, yes, the successors of Constantine in particular, and Constantius above all, um, who had a very much a love-hate relationship, mostly a hate relationship with Athanasius. <laughs> to follow up on that one, there's politic. often we think of political pressure outside the church, but politics happened inside the church too, and one sticky moment uh, that y'all explain about halfway through the book is what's commonly called the filioque controversy and i appreciated your explanation of that as primarily a political moment um which did have some doctrinal implications but not quite the same implications uh as sometimes are attributed to that moment would you mind sort of uh, would you mind addressing the, uh, the the church political context of a controversy like that, and how we might how we might navigate this? Okay, yes, shifting to internal politics as you as you internal politics as you just mentioned, what was happening in the ninth century leading to the controversy that we mislabel as the filioque controversy. 
Um, there were there were a couple of really important things that were going on. One was that the Bulgarian tribes had recently become Christian, and both Constantinople and Rome wanted those Bulgarian tribes to ally with them. The Moravian tribes had also recently become Christian, and they had allied with Rome and become a part of the Roman orbit, what we would call the, the Roman Catholic orbit, even though the missionaries to them were from the orbit of Constantinople. Cyril and Methodius were Greek. So now the same thing is happening with Bulgaria. And the translation work of Cyril and Methodius has borne fruit in Bulgaria. And again, we have the question, are you going to ally with Constantinople or are you going to ally with Rome? And that was really the major issue, political issue, between Constantinople and Rome in the middle of the ninth century. But another major issue was the fact that the papacy, that is the office of the Bishop of Rome, was increasingly flouting its own authority. Beginning as early as the fourth century, the papacy had declared that it had authority over the entire church. The Eastern churches had never accepted those declarations, and they were not about to accept them at this point either. But in the 8th and the ninth centuries, the papacy was increasingly stressing its own authority. And so in Constantinople, there was an Episcopal election, and a man by the name of Photius was chosen. The Bishop of Rome, the Pope, Nicholas, intervened in that Episcopal election, nullified it, and instated somebody else by the name of Ignatius as the Bishop of Constantinople. So this was one of the first really clear-cut cases of an attempt by the papacy to impose its will on non-Latin Christendom, on Christendom in the Eastern or Greek-speaking Christian world. And so because of that, there was this uproar in Constantinople. And for 20 years, there was a back and forth between Ignatius and Photius about who was the rightful bishop of Constantinople. So this is a political controversy on two levels. It has to do with the allegiance of some newly Christian tribes. With whom are they going to ally? And it also has to do with the question of whether the Pope can actually enforce his claim that he has power over the entire Christian world. That's the context of the Filioque controversy. But the Filioque, the question of whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son didn't enter the controversy until Photius sort of inserted it into the controversy in a letter in which he said that you have lots of problems as Latin Christians. He said, oh, by the way, you're heretical because you affirm the filioque. But this was, this was really not the source of the controversy or the heart of the controversy, I like to say that the filioque was the ammunition with which East and West shot at each other, but it was not actually what they were shooting about or what they were arguing about. The real issue in the filioque controversy, and in my opinion, the real issue that split the church between East and West later, was the issue of papal supremacy. The Western church was willing to go along with papal supremacy, the Eastern churches were never willing to accept it. And that, more than anything else, was what split the church. 
But if I'm right about that, that means that the split between Eastern and Western churches is a political split, not a doctrinal split, which may mean that it could be healed on doctrinal grounds. In my opinion, the presence or absence of the filioque by itself would not have split the church. Hmm. And we don't actually know, then, what it would have looked like if the church had actually had a an earnest ecumenical council on that point, because they didn't. Right. Well, they actually they actually had two councils that were claimed as ecumenical, but neither of those actually was. Uh, but yes, in my opinion, and this is just a guess, I think the church could probably have agreed to live with different models of the Trinity without splitting. That's just a guess, though. I'd like to transition to one of the most fascinating sections in the book for me in the early part was uh, the history of two creeds that aren't actually creeds, or at least aren't uh, the thing that we call them, the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed. So how did these texts come to be, and what did their stories tell us about doctrinal development that gets obscured if all we know are kind of tidy, sanitary stories about ecumenical councils. Okay. Well, let, let me start with the Apostles' Creed, which is far better known than the so-called Athanasian Creed. The reason that we call it the Apostles' Creed is because of a legend that just before the apostles scattered throughout the Eastern Hemisphere on their missions work, they all gathered in Jerusalem in order to come up with a unified statement of what they were going to preach. And according to the legend, each of the, the apostles contributed one line to this statement. And this statement was then recorded as the Apostles' Creed, it was never changed subsequently, and that's the message that the apostles took to the world. So that's the legend from which we get the name the Apostles' Creed. But that legend doesn't show up at all until the early 5th century, and the idea that each apostle contributed one line to the creed shows up even later than that in the 7th and the 8th century. And in fact, the Apostles' Creed isn't even called the Apostles' Creed until the very end of the 4th century. So the actual history of what happened with the Apostles' Creed is very different from the legend, the basically medieval legend that I've just recounted. But the Apostles' Creed began as a baptismal symbol, that is to say, as a creed that one would recite when being baptized, or that the sponsors would recite on behalf of a person being baptized. And there were various different baptismal symbols in the 2nd and 3rd centuries in different parts of the Christian world. What would later be called the Apostles' Creed was the baptismal symbol of Rome, which sometimes we refer to as the Old Roman Creed. The original form of the Old Roman Creed from the 2nd century was about half as long as the Apostles' Creed today. And we have a, a lot of 
literary evidence, evidence, a pretty strong paper trail that enables us to follow the development of that creed over time in various places in the Latin-speaking Christian world. About the year 400, as it's just beginning to be called the Apostles' Creed, it's getting close to the length that it would later be. But it didn't reach its final form until around 700, and ironically not in Rome, but that happened in Gaul, or what is today southern France. So the, the most famous addition to the old Roman creed on the way to becoming the Apostles' Creed is the statement that Christ descended into hell. That became a part of the creed sometime in the early 5th through maybe 6th century. It was not a part of the earlier versions. It was a part of the later versions. So what we have in the Apostles' Creed is a document that reflects the teaching of the Apostles in summary form, but it doesn't have any direct connection to the Apostles. And it emerged gradually through liturgical usage and especially usage in connection with baptism in the Western Church from about 150 to 700. One other interesting thing related to the Apostles' Creed is that it has never been officially approved by an ecumenical council. It holds what I like to call traditional authority in the Western Church. It doesn't have universal authority that comes from approval by the entire Church at an ecumenical council. Only the Nicene Creed has that kind of universal conciliar authority. So the Apostles' Creed is a creed. It is a little bit of a misnomer to call it Apostles' Creed, though, because it doesn't directly come from the Apostles. The Athanasian Creed is really an almost entirely different situation altogether. Scholars will sometimes quip that there are only two things we know for sure about the Athanasian Creed, that it isn't by Athanasius and that it isn't a creed. In fact, the other name for the Athanasian Creed is the Catholic faith, and that's the name I like to use for it, because that gets us away from the association with Athanasius and the word creed, that the Catholic faith or the Athanasian Creed was written probably in the early, late 5th or early 6th century, almost certainly in Gaul, that is to say in the western part of the Christian world, It was written in Latin, what Athanasius couldn't speak as far as we know, so he certainly couldn't have written it. And it was probably written by one person. The Athanasian Creed is very, what you could call, proto-medieval. It is very different from the earlier creeds in a couple of ways. One is that it doesn't focus on allegiance to the three persons. Instead, it focuses on the content of doctrine. And Western theology, both Catholic and Protestant, has later followed the Athanasian Creed in doing that, in focusing on doctrines rather than focusing on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The other thing that the Athanasian Creed does that's very proto-medieval is to emphasize the importance of works in salvation, which the earlier creeds don't do, and which, of course, would later be a major part of Roman Catholicism and a major major flashpoint in in the time of the Reformation. But the so-called Athanasian Creed began to have a bit of a 
cradle kind of status in the ninth century because Charlemagne, the so-called Holy Roman Emperor, that is to say the German king, ordered it to be used for the education of clergy as part of the Carolingian Renaissance beginning in the ninth century. So that's when the Athanasian Creed began to be considered as a creed. At that point, the association with the name Athanasius enhanced the prestige of this document quite a bit, even though it's very clear that Athanasius had nothing to do with writing. So we have in the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed two enormously influential texts that have often been used for catechesis of both the laity and training of clergy and we don't necessarily know specifically who wrote them when and under what authority <laughs> that I, I i i find that uh, a fascinating thing especially given how central the uh, expositions of the apostles creed become in Protestant catechism. Yes. Uh, the, the, the Athanasian Creed has, has been influential, but never as influential. The Apostles' Creed arguably has been more influential in the Western Christian world than the Nicene Creed has. And so it's really striking to think that it doesn't have the kind of conciliar authority that the Nicene Creed does. I like to speak of the Apostles' Creed as providing a skeleton on which to hang longer discussions of Christian doctrine. Hmm. It, it has very little specificity to it, so it doesn't have flesh, so to speak, on the bones, but it provides the bones, it provides the skeleton. And, and one of the things that's interesting to me is that when Western Christians, and especially Protestants, write commentaries on the Apostles' Creed today. They almost always bring in phrases from the Nicene Creed. I don't know if they even realize they're doing it. But because the Apostles' Creed is so inspecific, in order to discuss it, write a book about it, you have to bring in a great deal from the Nicene Creed in order to supplement what the Apostles' Creed is saying. Be that as it may, the Apostles' Creed is is much easier to memorize and to recite than the Nicene Creed. It serves very well as a basic skeletal summary of the Christian faith that can be fleshed out by adding a lot more detail to it. And deriving as it did from Western baptismal symbols, it's the form of something that is... uh, the form of a kind of creed that is older than the first ecumenical council, even, even if it is not precisely the same text as the most ancient baptismal symbols, correct? Yes, and we, we have, a, we have a, a very good idea of the state of the old Roman creed or the early version of the Apostles' Creed as early as the middle of the second century. And as I said, it was about half the length of the final Apostles' Creed at that point. So this goes back traditionally much farther than the Creed of Nicaea from the First Ecumenical Council. But at the same time, the Creed of Nicaea is also based on 
Greek baptismal symbols that also go back to the second century. So if you if you look at the evidence we have from the second and the third centuries, you can see two basic versions of creeds, one in Latin, the other in Greek. The Latin one is the kernel of the later Apostles' Creed, and the Greek one is the kernel of the later Nicene Creed. I find uh, I find delving into this history uh, fascinating for for many reasons, but not least of which the ways that uh, the earliest centuries of the church saw the commands to baptize disciples and to teach disciples as uh, intimately interconnected commands, so that these baptismal mm-hmm. symbols become the forms by which we teach. Yes, and relatively early in Christian history, in the, in the 4th century in particular, we start to have a lot of examples of extended catechetical lectures or sermons, which are based on the text of the Creed in whatever region the sermons come from. And they go clause by clause through the creed, and like they might preach a sermon on each of the clauses of the creed, and those would be given to the people who are preparing for baptism as part of that catechetical instruction. Yeah. Well, we can't do justice to all the details of the second half of the book. (laughs) We've already spoken for uh, a a good long time. But we ought to say something about the shift from creeds, as you've defined them, uh, to confessions in the Reformation and post-Reformation context. So what does a confession do that a creed doesn't do? And what impulses and pressures lead to that development of confessions? Okay, another great question, and I think it's important to recognize the difference between affirming our allegiance to the Father, Son, and Spirit and affirming what we believe about a variety of points of Christian doctrine. At the most basic level, Creeds usually do the first of those, and confessions do the second of those. The creeds, except for the Athanasian Creed, but the the creeds that actually were creeds were focused on and built around the three persons of the Trinity. We believe in the Father and talk a little bit about him. We believe in the Son, talk about him. We believe in the Spirit. So they're focused on the allegiance to the persons of the Trinity, whereas the confessions are much more like doctrinal statements in the modern sense of the word, affirming what we believe about a variety of different points of Christian doctrine. So that's one important difference, and it makes sense that the affirmations of allegiance need to come first, and the elaborate statements of doctrine, much longer statements of doctrine, come later in Christian history. There's a logic to the order in which that happens. But I think there's another important difference as well. 
And that is that the creeds were meant as unifying documents. They arose out of particular context, and they had to exclude particular heresies. But they were meant as a way of uniting the entire church around a common profession of allegiance. In contrast, the confessions in the Middle Ages, and especially at the time of the Reformation, had several different purposes, and Dr. Reeves, my co-author, divides them up into three main purposes. Some of the confessions were designed to be unifying documents to emphasize the commonality between Protestants and Catholics. Those came very early in Protestant history. Secondly, others were designed to distinguish Protestantism from Catholicism. And then third, and this is actually most of the Protestant confessions, most of the confessions were designed to distinguish one group of Protestants from other groups of Protestants. So this represented the rise of Protestant confessionalism, and it gave the Protestant movement a pronounced tendency to major on what they disagreed on, what they disagreed with Rome on, or what they disagreed with each other on, rather than on what they had in common. In Dr. Reeves' half of our book, he emphasizes that Protestantism has been ununified from the beginning. There wasn't an early Protestant unity that later evaporated. Protestantism was a divisive and a dividing movement from the beginning because the move to more specific articulations of doctrine naturally highlighted what you disagree with other groups on rather than highlighting what you agree with other groups on. So doctrines, uh, I'm sorry, confessions have to do with what we believe, creeds with in whom we believe. Confessions come later, creeds come earlier. Confessions also tended to focus on what distinguishes us from other groups rather than what unites us with other groups of Christians. That's helpful. One of the uh, one of the things that uh, n- perhaps uh, confessions highlight that creeds do not is uh, the differences of liturgical practice as uh, as distinctions that would prevent perhaps uh, one one group from sharing the same. Uh, Service of uh, service of worship or liturgical uh, or or Eucharistic service um, because their their practice in in that is is different. Um, I wonder whether there were such differences of liturgical practice or Eucharistic practice in the patristic world or the early medieval world that that we simply uh, don't see because those differences were not what was focused on in an age where the creed of unity was the important doctrinal utterance, not the creed of distinction. Okay. Yes. Another excellent question. One thing to recognize is that creeds are themselves liturgical documents. They are embedded within the worship practices of the church, but they don't describe what happens around them. So they are documents that we've sort of lifted out of their context, and sometimes we we don't know what the context was. 
In contrast, the confessions were not meant to be part of liturgical practice. They were meant to take sort of a bird's eye view and look at the liturgical practice and describe what is and is not acceptable. That's one of the things that the confessions were trying to do. And so those confessions naturally mention divergent practices and which one they think is correct, and therefore they accentuate the differences. In fact, there were there was a fairly wide variety of liturgical practice in the early church as well. A lot of that variety was stamped out, isn't quite the right word, but it was sort of glossed over and smoothed out, let's say, rather than stamped out. A lot of that variety was smoothed out in the Western church as Rome came more and more to dominate the Western church. It began to be when in Rome, do as Rome does, when not in Rome, do as Rome does. And you have to do it in Latin, of course. That kind of standardizing or homogenizing never really happened in the Eastern churches because they were working in a dozen or 15 different languages, not just in one language. And so there, there's a good, a good bit of variety in the early church as well. We tend not to be aware of it because we're mainly aware of what was going on in the, in the Latin church, which was more homogenized. I know this is outside of the purview of your book, but uh, looking back at looking back at church history and thinking about the ways that, especially since the 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 Reformation, we've we've so linked liturgical difference with division in the church. Um, I, it, it it makes me wonder whether whether things might have been a little bit different if uh if if the if the ideas of of unity and faithfulness to uh the trinity and doing precisely the same thing on sunday uh had not necessarily become so equated as they did <laughs> oh well right and i and i think we can say not only that they would have been different, but that in the southern and the eastern churches, they were different. They just weren't different in the western church. Because one of the ideas which I think was pretty prevalent in the eastern Christian churches, and I, I don't just mean Greek, but I also mean in, in northeast Africa and in what we call the Middle East and in Persia and India as well, but in the early Eastern Christian churches, there was a strong push toward a unified Christian doctrine. But there was no particular sense that a unified doctrine had to result in a unified worship practice. They believed that there was, there was room for different languages, obviously, but also some variety in worship practices in spite of a uniformity of doctrine. It was in the Latin-speaking church, and in my opinion, mainly beginning in the late 6th century and moving into the 7th and the 8th centuries, that the idea became very strong. A uniform doctrine must imply a uniform worship practice. And I, and I think that development was unfortunate. And I, I think if there had been more contact 
between the Latin Church and what we call the Middle Ages and the Eastern Churches, then the the situation by the year 1500 might have been a good bit different than it was. But of course, that's speculation. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, sir. Uh, but on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to show hospitality by giving our guests the last word. What would you like our listeners to consider as we bring this conversation to a close? Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to give me such an open-ended question at the end. Um, let me mention one thing related to modern confessionalism. I emphasize that Protestant confessionalism was inherently divisive early on because the confessions were trying to distinguish one group from other groups, including other Protestant groups. But one very interesting thing that Dr. Reeves talked about, talks about in the last chapter of the book is the way confessionalism tended to come full circle in the 20th century as more and more of the Protestant confessions began to focus on what unites us again rather than on what distinguishes us. So that's a, a very interesting shift in the direction of confessionalism more recently compared to the way it had been in the 16th and 17th centuries. But beyond that, I'd like to emphasize several points that Dr. Reeves and I were trying to emphasize in our book, and especially that I was trying to emphasize in the first half of the book. The first point is that what unites all Christians is greater than what distinguishes from one another, even though the latter is also very important. We need to remember we have a lot more in common than you might think, given the fact that we tend to talk about what we disagree on. Second point I'd like to make is that confessions are basically doctrinal statements affirming what we believe. And we are shaped as Protestants by confessions, and so we tend to think of confessing in terms of confessing a what, confessing what we believe. But creeds, as I've emphasized, are not doctrinal statements. Instead of focusing on what we believe, they focus on the ones in whom we believe. I like to call them pledges of allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in light of that, the last point that I'd like to leave you with is that if you recite a creed in worship, and I hope you do, or I hope you will if you don't already, I would like to urge your worship leaders to introduce the creed not by asking, as we normally do, Christians, what do you believe? Because that's not the question that the creeds are answering. Instead, I would like the worship leader to introduce the creeds by asking Christians, in whom do you believe? And I think if we ask the question that way, we can focus our attention on our allegiance to the Father, to the Son, to the Spirit. And that's what lies at the heart of the creeds, and in my opinion, at the heart of the Christian faith as well. That's lovely. Thank you, Dr. Fairbairn, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Well, dear listeners, uh, that is, sadly, all that we've got time for. 
in this episode, we've been having a conversation with Dr. Donald Fairbairn about uh, his book, uh, The Story of Creeds and Confessions, Tracing the Development of the Christian Faith, which he co-authored, uh, co-authored with Ryan Reeves. It's published by Baker Academic, and uh, we will have a link to that book on the show notes on the blog. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode, uh, you can post them on the show notes at our blog, christianhumanist.org, when those go up. You can also uh, post them on our Facebook wall. You can send us emails at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and we're also now on Twitter at uh, radio. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our editor is Brett Stack. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippek. And I'm David Grubbs, urging you to be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>